Zechariah is proclaiming a word of prophecy about a coming king. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in reference uh, to the Palm Sunday text because Jesus rides in on a donkey and the people say, Blessed is the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the gospel authors and early Christians quickly picked up what Jesus was doing in riding this donkey. If you remember, they picked this up and they said, oh, this is what Zechariah was talking about. Zechariah was written at a time where the people were in exile and the Persians had come and they had basically released the people to go back to Jerusalem, back to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. So the people's imaginations were starting to perk up again. That maybe God is saving us again. God is doing something in our midst again. God is active. And so they started to proclaim that the one that God had promised, the one who would be in the line of David, will come and make everything right again. But even though that prophecy came to them in Zechariah's day, even though that came to them, they were still waiting. They were still waiting. And so it's similar to the earliest Christians who put their hope in Jesus. They thought he was the Messiah. They watched him go to the cross. They watched him be killed. And and there was some confusion. If you remember the stories after, even after the resurrection Sunday, even after Jesus had appeared, there were some stories of doubts. The word comes to mind, bewilderment. Well, they just didn't understand what this was all about. This wasn't how the conquering king, the Messiah, it's, it's not how this was supposed to go down. Some of my favorite stories, uh, post-resurrection stories, are like the road to Emmaus story found in Luke 24. You have these two disciples, and they're walking, and they are completely, totally bummed out. And Jesus comes and talks with them, and they don't know it's Jesus. And he comes and talks with them, and they, they say, well, what's going on? Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard about Jesus, the prophet? We thought he was the Messiah. We had hoped he was the one, but now he's dead. And it's been three days and you haven't heard anything. So the people had lost hope. The earliest followers of Christ had lost hope. But if you remember, they're in this place of lament. And prior to Easter, during the season of Lent, those weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, we sat in lament. As a church, we went through a sermon series lamenting about the need for clean water in our world through a sermon series where we lamented about those who don't know Christ, those who are not yet in Christ over death and dying. We, we talked about that. and We looked at that, that tough topic. As I said in those sermons, they weren't happy, clappy type sermons. We kind of went down into the depths of raw, real human emotions. We talked about natural disasters. But we talked about lament, biblical lament being this interesting thing because biblical lament is not just shaking one's fist at God. It is taking stock of what's going on in the world, taking account of what we see, seeing what's out of whack, what doesn't make sense, saying, God, how does this exist? Why, God? Where are you, God? But biblical lament on the back end always has hope. It comes from a place of hope. And so we're moving into this series where I came across this text where, where Zechariah follows up this announcement that the king will be coming with this line, return to your fortresses, you prisoners of hope. And that image was just seared in my brain. What would it look like to be shackled to hope? Shackled 
to hope. I first came across this, this notion of being prisoners of hope in a book I was reading called White Awake. Pastor Daniel Hill, who uh, started a, 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 an intentionally diverse church in Chicago. He came from Willow Creek, which is a gigantic, gigantic, mostly white church in the suburbs of Chicago. And gigantic is an understatement. When I lived in Chicago, I went out there and visited Willow Creek. And I sat in their like 3,000 person stadium. It was like literally the stadium type seating up like this. And it felt like I was in a mega mall when I walked in. It was like, oh, there's a Starbucks and a McDonald's and holy cow, what is this place? And I saw they were doing construction and I'm like, what's going on over there? And they're like, we're going to build the 5,000 person seat auditorium over there because we've outgrown the 3,000. And so Daniel Hill, he left that church and he went into the city of Chicago and he wanted to plant an intentionally diverse urban church. And he tells his story in the book Wide Awake of, of the struggles he went through. The ways that he would walk into conversations with just from a place of power and privilege coming from this giant mega church and coming in and saying he knows how to do everything because he'd been part of this big thing. And what he had to unlearn and learn about race, racism, power, privilege, all those really fun things we like to talk about. But he shared his personal journey and he came to this place in one of his final chapters. He writes about lament and hope. And it just grabbed me because we were in this season of lament when I read the book. He says, lament is a beautiful and needed resource because it has the unique way of remaining awake to sorrow without succumbing to it. I really like that. That lament opens our eyes to sorrow and the, the troubles, the suffering around us, but we don't succumb to it. Lament allows us to grieve injustice but not fall into despair. We can be awake to the pain of the world, but still press forward in faith because of another beautiful word at the center of the gospel, hope. Hope. Over the next few weeks, all the way through Mother's Day, we're going to be looking at what it means to be prisoners of hope. Hope. He shared another story in his book, something he had heard from African-American author, activist, philosopher, professor Cornell West. In 1997, Cornell West was interviewed on the topic of racial tensions in our nation and even amongst black folks in the black community. The, the, the interviewee, he asked him, uh, the interviewer, that is, asked West, are you optimistic? You look around, you look and see what's going on. And he says, are you optimistic? His response caught my attention. He said, no, I'm not optimistic. I've never been optimistic about humankind or America. This is going to get better. The evidence never looks good in terms of forces for good actually becoming prominent. But I am a prisoner of hope. And that's very different. I believe that we do have signs of hope. We have to make a leap of faith beyond the evidence and try to energize one another so we can accent the best in one another. That is what being a prisoner of hope is all about. That grabbed my attention, this difference between optimism. Oh, let's just make sure we see the glass half full. Let's just have this kind of pie-in-the-sky mentality. And sometimes Christians are accused of this, that we ignore reality and we pretend like everything's okay. Sometimes Christians are accused of that kind of thing. Uh, we've been accused of uh, being so heavenly-minded we're no earthly good. You heard that phrase before? That's a phrase that's out there, mind you. You're so heavenly-minded you're no earthly good. One author writes, hope is powerful. 
Hope is different than optimism because mere optimism is cheap. Optimism is ultimately about optics, about how we see the world, seeing the glass half full. Hope is different. Hope is a cosmic quality. It's rooted in faith with feet mired in suffering. Hope is a heart in agony that yearns for liberation. Hope is tied not to how we see the world, but to the faith we have in how the world actually is and will be. Hope is that other side of lament. So when we're shackled to hope, prisoners of hope, we choose, we choose to see the good, long for the good in others, see the good in others, believe that even though there's suffering, even though there's pain, resurrection, new life is actually possible. It is available. New life is here now. When we have hope and we're prisoners shackled to hope, we look at our world very differently. And we see things and name them for what they are, but we say God is good and can make all things new, even that. Hope is what makes us look at something like the the clean water crisis and go, you know what? We can do something about that in Jesus' name. We can do something about that. It's It's big crises like that that otherwise they become numbing. And it just becomes, it's easy to become apathetic and cynical even and say, why? We can't do anything about these big things. But when we're shackled to hope, prisoners of hope in what God can do and what God has done, Christians have stepped into the messiest of situations to say, no, I believe God can even change this. God can even change that. So hope is the other side of lament. Hope is this belief that God is in the business, is is in the process of making all things new, even when it looks like it's not happening. Even when on the surface it looks like things are really rough. Yes, hope in Christ. But before you get to this idea that, that it's just easy, it's just easy to have hope, it's just another side of the, of the coin, if you will, uh, of optimism. Let's remember that hope, hope recognizes suffering. I think that's the thing we have to hang on to because that's where, like I said, Christians get this reputation for being only focused on the other world and not focused on here because we're not rooted in suffering, rooted in the real life of what's going on in our world. So the challenge of hope is that we also recognize what's really going on. I got to tell you that in my own life, in my own life, as I've I've kind of wrestled through situations where you look at something and you go, what really, God, what is going on with this? What is going on with this situation? It seems like every political cycle we kind of get into this. Every political cycle, whatever side of the aisle you happen to sit on, we all kind of start to go like, oh, my hope is that if these people win, we'll get this thing to happen. And the other side says, if these people win, we'll get this thing to happen. And if we're honest, we start to throw our hopes into those things. I've also seen this happen in, in, in regards to our finances and our, and our job security and, and other things. We put our hope in things, hoping wishing, praying that that those things will save us. And those things then fail us. And we go, what's that about? 
Why is our this, this amazing political system failing us? We ask at various times. Unless you're really happy with it. Then you go, it's great. Why are people complaining? Or, or you find yourself in a situation where you go, ah, I finally got that job. I finally got that raise. I finally got that spouse, that girlfriend, that boyfriend, the children I wanted, the relationships I wanted. But why is life still hard? Because we put our hopes in something other than Jesus. One of the times in my life where my, my hopes were kind of shattered was at the end of seminary for me. I've shared this a little bit with you over the last couple of years, but at the end of seminary, uh, my, my dad was always uh, pretty unhealthy and had various uh, things going on in his life. Uh, he had diabetes, he had lost a leg because of that, eyesight because of that, had kidney failure and on and on, but it always seemed like he was just going to prevail. Modern medicine would just help him live uh, till he was, I don't even know, <laughs> like it was impossible for him to succumb to this stuff. But in March of my last year of seminary, my last year of seminary, my, my dad, it, it was too much, and he passed away. It was like two months before I'm going to graduate. You know, Jody and I have been married about a year, not even a year, huh? Not even a year. So we're looking for the career path. Where is God going to send us after seminary? We're all excited about all these things. I put our hopes and our dreams in all these things. My dad had even bought a cabin. And I'm like, Dad, why'd you buy this cabin? He's like, it's for the kids. I'm like, Dad, I haven't been married a year yet. That's a little premature. A little premature, Dad. But we didn't get to, you know, we, he, we had hopes. We had plans for what the future would look like as a family with grandkids and going to the cabin. And we put all of our hopes in that. And then it all changed. It all changed. I, I've experienced the realness, the rawness of suffering and loss in this world. And, and the time where people, they try to move you out of that pretty quickly. You know, the, 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 I had the great privilege, maybe I've shared this before, of going back to seminary where everyone was training to be pastors. So everyone wanted to be my pastor when I got back. Everyone wanted to like, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Let's talk. Let's talk. Now, they were all well-intentioned, but it got overwhelming. And I was just in this place of, oh, my goodness, what do I do now? Everything seems to be different. But you're in a place where you had to say, I'm, I'm stuck in this, but am I going to choose to be shackled to hope? That there is something positive that will come. That resurrection life is real. That my dad did have a relationship with Christ. What, what do you do in those moments but have hope? I found myself, which I have up here on the screen, uh, from time to time in my life. Just I, I've grown up in mostly traditional churches. Churches that sing traditional music, hymns. I didn't always love it. In fact, I mostly didn't love it. But I grew up in those churches, and these hymns are like ingrained in my mind. And this is one of those hymns that in times of stress, in times where I find or I look out and I'm like, wow, people of God, we are, I am putting my hopes in things other than Jesus, this song comes to mind. I don't know if you know this song, but I don't want to sing it alone. And I want to just a cappella sing the first two verses with the chorus, so I'm going to trust you to help me, and that a bunch of you in this room better know this song or it's going to be real interesting so it goes something like this my hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness i dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on jesus name on christ the solid rock i stand 
All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You help me out, kids. That was good. Honestly, it's little things like that for me that remind me, just humming that tune of, it's Christ the solid rock on which I stand. That my hope, that hope that I'm shackled to, that hope that I say, I will be a prisoner to this. We have all kinds of things that we can shackle ourselves to, right? All kinds of things that we can find ourselves chained to. And kind of look around and go, how did that happen? But what if we choose to be shackled to hope in Christ? And say our hope truly is in Christ alone. That's where our hope is. Only in Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I I don't know. I I wonder if we've lost some of that kind of old school tie to this sense where we can kind of hum that tune and go, yes, that's the reminder in times where we're in suffering, in times where it feels like we're getting shackled to something else, where we're in the deep weeds and we don't know how to get out. Do we have that voice in our head, the Spirit saying, I'm here. Christ is here, your hope in Christ, that's a good place to find oneself. Because all other ground is sinking sand. Shackling yourself to hope, I want to reflect on this more in sermons to come, but Eugene Peterson, pastor, author Eugene Peterson, he has this famous book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I think that's required of us. That is what is required of us as believers if we are to have this hope shackled to Christ. A long obedience in the same direction. It's much more like running a marathon than a sprint. A long obedience in the same direction. Realizing that this life that we live is uncertain. This life that we live, there will be ups and downs. There will be times where it's beautiful and we see resurrection all around us, new life and times where we're in the weeds and in the suffering, long obedience in the same direction. Father Greg Boyle, he's been working with uh, gangs in L.A. since the 1980s. You may have heard of him. His organization is Homeboy Industries, and now they have Homegirl Industries as well. He tells the story, it just grabbed my, my, my attention as I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and then reading his book, Tattoos on the Heart. He's reading a story, he's a, a Jesuit priest, he's in Dolores Park, I believe is the area of, of the city that he's in. And so he came there in the 1980s, he was called to, to be the priest of this local parish. And he realizes there's just gangs everywhere and it was a rough, rough place. And he tried to minister to folks, he tried to build peace 
in the community. But what, he said something interesting. He realized that there was really, it, it, was, it was violence, but there wasn't real conflict. It was an interesting thing that he said. You couldn't define the conflict. It was just violence. It was violence. He tried to make peace treaties bef- between gangs, and it's like they couldn't even understand what they were making peace about. Because there was no real one thing that was the conflict. It was just violence. And what, what, he, what led him to, uh, to understand what was going on, the way he wrapped his mind around it, is he said what was going on is that there was a lethal absence of hope. A lethal absence of hope. Th- these were young men and women without hope. And so they were choosing to shackle themselves, chain themselves to things that they could control. Because they had no hope. They had no hope of living a better life, of going off to school. This is just what their life was. This is the cards they were dealt. At least that was the mindset. And so there wasn't a sense that they could go anywhere in life. They had no hope. Many of them had been incarcerated for drug crimes, for other things. And so they came back and there was no hope. No one wanted to employ them. I've seen a lot of pictures of these folks. They have some scary face tattoos. You don't want that person. Most people don't want to hire that person. So he was in this community trying to figure out in a community where there's a lethal absence of hope. That word lethal was real. Because of the absence of hope, people were just killing each other. It was self-preservation, self-protection. It was about the self and not about hope, something bigger that you could participate in. And so what they did is they started homeboy ministry, uh, industries, homeboy industries, where they opened a bakery and a coffee shop. I think they do screen printing. They have all these companies and businesses now where they employ gang members. Now, the, the tricky thing is, is that some of them are still in the gangs, and so then they're forced to work alongside somebody from the rival gang. And they start to realize that there is no real conflict. It's all sort of arbitrary of, well, I took up this side and you took up that side. And the walls start to break down. Barriers start to break down. And Father Boyle has been allowed into people's lives to talk to them, to help them dream, to give them hope. To give them hope. They found that even something like as simple as something that we might take for granted, of having a job, having meaningful work, gives immense amounts of hope that people can do something different, go somewhere different, live a different life because they've been given hope. Now, his ministry might seem radical to you. It might be like, well, that's not something we all can do. And I know that any time a preacher uses an example of somebody doing work like this, it's like, gosh, are you saying we should all like what, up and move to the city and do something like this? Maybe somebody needs to. Maybe somebody will. Maybe one person in here, a couple people in here will feel that call to go and do something that monumental, that big, that different. But for most of us, I think our call is to do what we can in our context to infuse hope to the people around us. I often used to talk to my youth group students and I would say, I want you to be world changers. And they would kind of look at me like, world changers? We're 15. We can't change the world. But what if you look at the world as just your sphere of influence? That the world you can change is your sphere of influence. The people you work with. 
the people you go to school with, the people who are your neighbors, your family members, the people you rub shoulders with every day in your sports team, at band practice, at rotary, those people that you can influence, where you can infuse hope into people's lives, where we can help them to see that the hope in Christ takes the long view. Hope in Christ overcomes obstacles. Hope in Christ is not just optimism that says, well, I guess today things are terrible, but I choose to see the glass half full. That's not the worst thing in the world. But see, hope again, hope stands, stands in the suffering. And says, even though it looks like this, I'm shackled to hope, and I believe a better day is to come. See, Father Boyle, his, his ministry is so interesting to me in reading his stories and tattoos on the heart. Because it seems like, if you just hear him speak, that maybe these are just quick life changes, you know? He gets this person off the streets, they start working in the bakery, and their life has changed forever. But when he tells the story, sometimes it's taken 10, 20, 30 years to change a life. But he's stuck it out. He's had that long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction. He told some stories. Uh, I'm not going to remember him exactly, but going uh, to way too many funerals, by the way, for young people. Way too many funerals for young people that he's done in that community. And where, where he's at the funeral presiding, officiating the, the memorial service. And a gang member would walk in and just cuss him out to his face for what he's trying to do in the community. And then 20 years later, the same guy coming into his office bawling, recognizing that the life he's living is without hope. It's not going anywhere. And seeing over the course of 20 years, lives changed. Long obedience in the same direction. Again, we can't all do the ministry that Father Boyle is doing, but we can do what we can do with the people we know, with the influence we have. And every single one of us does have influence. Every single one of you in this room. Shane Claiborne, who's an activist, uh, he, in his early years in ministry, he wanted to go and visit Mother Teresa. And so he got a crew together and they went to Calcutta and they visited Mother Teresa and he was just blown away by what Mother Teresa was doing and infusing hope into these people who were so hopeless. And he had this similar reaction of, how can I ever do something this meaningful? How can I ever do this? Do I need to move to Calcutta? Is that the only way to serve God is to move to Calcutta? And she said to him, Calcuttas are everywhere. Find your Calcutta. What is your Calcutta? What is your homeboy industry? Who are the people where you're already rubbing shoulders with them where you can bring the love of God, hope of Christ into your community? You, friends, you are prisoners of hope. We together are prisoners of hope. All of us. Do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? Do we have imaginations to creatively wonder about all that God could be up to in this world, in and through you, in and through us? What would it look like for you to embrace that title, Prisoner of Hope? And to live your life in such a way post-Easter, because I know Easter is this big celebration that can be like right back into the muck and mire of life. 
So I think it's so important for us in these weeks to come to understand what it means to have hope, this long obedience in the same direction that chooses to see that there is new life available for us and for everyone else in our sphere of influence. We move to the table this morning to celebrate our hope in Christ. It's amazing just this morning, uh, uh, a, a young one, a little one this morning came up and was standing at the table and before service and was like, what is this? What's this about? And what a, what, what a just rich opportunity where I was like, you know, we just celebrated last week Easter. And the week before that, Jesus had a meal with his friends. He had a meal with his friends where he told him what was going to happen to him. And he said, I want you to keep having this meal to remember me, to remember me, to infuse hope. That's my prayer for us today is that as we come to this table, as we come to this table this morning, you may re-up. You may re-up. Choose once again to be shackled to the hope you have in Christ. This meal where, where Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. It's going to be broken for you, poured out for you. And gather together, do this to remember what I did for you. May you remember this morning as we come to the table that we are shackled to hope, to the hope in Christ that he has overcome death, he has overcome the devil, he has overcome sin for you, for me, for the entire world, for all who would put their trust in him. And let us shackle ourselves to that hope. Would you pray with me? God, we come to this table that is your table. It's yours, but you invite us to it. You invite us to come and have a feast with you and to remember what you did for us. God, as we remember, as we participate in remembering, God, inspire that hope in us. Maybe we've lost some hope. Maybe we need that, that hope bucket to be filled up again. God, come this morning and move among us. Fill us up to overflowing Lord, so that it's not just us who are filled, but we can overflow that hope that you give to our community. God, your good news is open for everyone. Help us to remember that, that the good news of Jesus Christ is open to everyone who would accept it, who would call on your name. Help us, God, as your agents, as your prisoners of hope, to live that message, live that truth, that our hope is truly built on nothing nothing else but Jesus. God, come and have your way with us the rest of this service. May we have an encounter with you, an encounter with you as we come to your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ desire his help that they may lead a holy life all who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them, all who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life, following the commandments of God and walking from now on in his holy ways, are invited to draw near with faith and receive this holy sacrament. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the, peace of the people of God. 
Many will come from east and west, from north and south, and sit at table in the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's table. Our Savior invites those who trust him to share the feast he has prepared. According to Luke, when our risen Lord was at table with those same two disciples who were wondering and doubting, unsure of what all took place, when he had dinner with them, he broke bread, he gave thanks, he gave it to them, their eyes were opened, and they recognized that it was Jesus. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they're delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we together proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I'm going to invite the service to come forward at this time. This morning as we come forward to receive communion, we'll be doing a method called intinction where you'll tear a piece of bread and dip it into the cup and then partake. You can come down the middle aisle and then return through the sides. There will also be a station in the back. Uh, there's also a gluten-free station on this side of the sanctuary if you need gluten-free. And for anyone who is unable to make it forward, I will be coming about uh, the worship uh, center with this bread and cup as well. Please flag me down. I don't want anyone to be missed. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, our Savior, bless forever. To you we give praise and honor for giving yourself, shedding your blood, letting your body be broken for us. God, all that so also that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Bless, God, this bread which we take together, this cup which we together drink. Let us, through this bread and this cup, become partakers, participants in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, be reminded that we are prisoners of hope in Christ. Table is ready. Come as you are ready. <laughs> 